Baruch Hashem Yahuwah. Let's turn to Yaakov, the book of James, Yaakov, and we are in the fourth chapter today. Exciting as we get into the first verse here, we can see from where do wars and fighting among you come? Do they not come from your desires that war in your members? This is very, very apparent for us today, especially in light of the things that are happening in the world today, this past week in particular, the wars. And people would have us believe that there is this war of um, specifically over the past week with Islam against the um, LGBT um, community. But the reality of it, and you're seeing this now in Britain with next week the Brexit, the reality is we have to see that we have a war, and the war is from the globalists against the nationalists. And because Islam is a globalist and wants to take over the globe, then they have united with the globalists, and the globalists are using Islam for their agenda. But our war is not against flesh and blood and principalities, but we have to understand it is actually against the globalists and the nationalists, whether it's in this country or any other country in the world. And where do these wars come from? Where do these wars come from? They come from the Greek word here is hedone, hedone. It's hedonism. It's hedonism. Their own desires. And the globalists are at this level that, as we will see in the book of Yaakov, because their own desires are hedonism, the globalist agenda, they will actually stop at nothing because it leads to what? Murder. It will, they will stop at nothing to get their own desires. So this book is very apparent, specifically where we are at, at a global level. But understand, when the media that's sold out to the globalists tells you there's this war of this and a war of that, at the end of the day, it is nationalism against globalism. And Islam has aligned itself with globalism because they have a common agenda. A common agenda. So our faith, as we go into this chapter 4, it's tested by its relationship to the world. Our faith is tested by its relationship to the world and worldliness. Factionalism. Factionalism originates in the sin nature. And the globalists are into trying to stir what? Factionalism. That's what they want. They want us to fight amongst one another. In the meantime, continuing with their enslavement agenda. If we can fight against one another, racial, creed, denominational, economically then we will be unaware of the fact that the globalists are trying to enslave everybody. But if we wake up and come together as Joseph's coat of many colors, we can unite and say we want to be free. And the only freedom comes from serving the great Yahuwah. 
factionalism originates in the sin nature, and it's stoked by the principalities that lead these nutters. And yes, it is principalities that lead them. Look at the architecture that they lord up, whether it's in the city of London, Washington, D.C. Their architecture demonstrates and communicates that they are led by principalities. Washington, D.C. is fueled by the principalities that it has worshipped in its architectural structures. That is without a shadow of a doubt. So it is not just the flesh and blood, but the principalities behind them that enslave the masses to captivity of sin, right? You see, the White House is using the Mohammedans, stoking racial division and employing sexual hedonism and sexual hedonism's agenda to create the very factionalism that it needs to divide and conquer this nation. Are we aware of it? We have to call it out. We have to speak to the people that are enslaved and communicate the truth to them, to lead them to the light, because people literally are becoming more and more enslaved by this agenda, and it is only going to escalate more and more as we get towards the elections. As we get towards the elections. From where do wars and fighting among you come? Do they not come from your hedonism? Hedonai in the Greek that war in your members. So it's the whoremonger philosophy, the whoremonger philosophy that makes pleasure and licentiousness mankind's chief end. That's all that this world is about. And that's all they they portray to the young generation now. A person that lives only for pleasure, desiring things which he has not or which is unlawful to him to have. And that is our society. People are ruled by self-gratification. They are ruled by self-love. And if you start to speak truth into their life, then they get upset and offended and are sensitive. And now you can't even offend somebody with the truth. Capitulate to the lies for their senses. You see, this is crazy, but we also ultimately have to bring it back to our faith within the mishpocha of the congregation and our families at home, because when we are dealing with one another, arguments within our relationships come from where? They come from our own desires. They come from our own desires. And I've really seen this a lot with my interaction with my children. When I maybe get hot and I argue with my child, I don't argue, but if I get angry with my child, when I catch myself, which I often do, I find that it is usually because I did not get my desire. One of my great desires in my house is for quiet study time. And when I don't get that sometimes, I find that 
I get angry when my toe is, I think, broken again from tripping over another piece of bloody Lego. Or, you know, but things like that. But, you know, these are the things that I have to struggle with. And that stuff is dangerous. It is some dangerous stuff. I bet the globalists laid that out because they knew it was going to come in some of our houses. Stumbling my walk again. But we need to identify that the arguments that we have with our family members, we have to catch ourselves. Why are you hot right now with the one you love? Um, You didn't get something that you wanted. And when we can catch ourselves like that, we can go, hang on a minute, I'm actually angry right now because of my own selfish desire. That's what it is. I wanted something. My wife and I, We found ourselves having an argument the other night. Do you know what it was over? No, no. What was it over? It was, what did you call it? She called it a salad kit. I've never heard such a thing. I wanted a salad, so I start to grab some lettuce. But apparently it was a salad kit. I'm like, that's absurd. Don't you call me absurd? And we got into an argument over a salad kit. A salad kit is thus. Apparently, it's a specific mixture of pre-washed greens sealed in a bag with dressing and everything that you're supposed to have for that kit. But no, I see some greens, I tear open the bag, and I'm going to stick some blue chip, what I want on the kit. Not what they're telling you you've got to have on. And, and we, I'm like, this is ridiculous. Anyway, where do these wars come from? Matthew wanted his own blue cheese salad the way he likes it. Not a way they told me to have it in the kit. Again, but this is, I mean, ridiculously silly. But how many of our arguments in our families with our wives and husbands are when you come down to it? ridiculous but it can seem very serious at the time but the greatest victory that we have had in our marriage is second corinthians i believe it's chapter 10 and we pray this together and i i recommend give you a tool at home we drop to our knees for though we live in the world we do not wage war as the world does for the weapons that we fight with have divine power to demolish arguments. Tamara and I demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up before the knowledge of Yahweh, and we take captive every thought of ours and hold it obedient to Yahusha HaMashiach. And guess what? Everything starts to simmer down. Now, sometimes she'll grab my hand and she'll say, let's pray together. And I'll be like, and and then I really know it's bad, (laughs) right? So then we really know that we have, but it's amazing. When you pray and you align yourself with the word of Yahuwah, can dissolve that heat and dissolve that tension and break through. Just the other night, Tamara grabbed my hand. She grabbed Moshe's hand because me and Moshe were getting into something and we prayed. He's on one side looking at me. I'm on the other side looking at him. <laughs> And my wife, and we come together in prayer, praying the word, and you realize, where do these wars come from? They come from our own desires. They come from our own desires. And acknowledging that, acknowledging that is the victory. Acknowledging where it comes from, and then submitting to the word of Yahuwah. 
This is the victories in our marriages, in our families, in our home. Acknowledging where the wars come from and submitting to the word of Yahuwah. That is twofold victory for us all. Plato, the great philosopher, of course, in his writing, his book, Phaedo, he wrote this. And we have to understand this was in circulation and was very popular among the Hellenistic Jewish audience that Yaakov would have been addressing in the diaspora. So Plato wrote in Phaedo, and I believe this is where Yaakov was pulling from, he said thus, And the body fills us with passions and desires and fears and all sorts of fancies and foolishness. So that, as they were, it really and truly makes it impossible for us to think at all. The body and its desires are the only cause of wars and factions and battles. And as the younger generation are so ensnared within the sensual bodily realm, they don't think. You literally can go to college campuses. And I just tried this out on a college student just a few days ago. And I just asked a question. Who, what was the battle between what country and what country in the Second World War? You know, I thought I'd do that for fun. There's no way they're not going to get it. College student, um, America, there's a good one, yep, and Korea. <laughs> Goodness. They, these, are, these are the next politicians for us. But it's all about the body and licentiousness that the brain has turned to mush, to absolute mush. I think it was Mark Dice that went to a college campus when there was a gun violence in America and said something like this. Do you, do you think if there was better gun legislation that um, Lee Harvey Oswald wouldn't have been able to shoot Jesus Christ? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 I definitely think, yeah. Going around a college campus and asking people if there had been better gun legislation that it would have prevented Lee Harvey Oswald from shooting Jesus Christ. And college students in California are saying, oh yeah, I think that would be a good idea. That is terrifying. On so many levels, on so many levels, that is terrifying. This is the reality of this world that we live in. And this all comes from what? This globalist agenda of enslaving the masses and bringing in this factionalism. But we have the answers when we recognize and see that any wars come from our own desires and that if we want victory, we need to acknowledge that and we need to submit to the word of Yahuwah. Because otherwise, we would take a fourfold downward spiral progression into worldliness. Four things that will spiral you down into worldliness so fast that you need to be aware. Number one, in verse two, you desire and you ain't got it. You desire and you have not. That's the first spiral down into worldliness. Evil desires and cravings for pleasure that are unfulfilled in rage and the heart of man. 
And have not means this self-seeking is always frustrated, is it not? It's always frustrated. The second spiral down into worldliness is you kill. The frustrations of lust, and this is where it really concerns me with these politicians, the globalists. The frustrations of lust for power, the frustrations for lust to violent outbursts if left unchecked. Murder. Because hatred in the heart equals murder. David desired, did he not? He desired something when he was looking out of his window. And what did that lead to? It led to murder, did it not? Ahab, he was looking and he thought, whoa, that sure is a nice field. I'd like to have that field. So what did it lead to? It led to the murder of Naboth, did it not? You see, those desires, if left unchecked, will lead to murder. The third spiral down into worldliness is you desire to have and you cannot obtain jealousy, envy for the possessions of others, yet you cannot obtain them. Don't compare yourself to any man. More frustrations will follow you and hound you all the days of your life. And the fourth spiral down to carnality and worldliness, you strive and fight Yet you have not. Whatever extremes you go to satisfy your lusts, even murder, they will remain unsatisfied. Now there was a document in circulation at the time of this writing of Yaakov that was to the believers of Yahusha, and it was called the Daideche. And in Daideche 3.1 it says this, it's very fitting. And Daideche was really a document in how the believers in Yahusha in the first century were to behave with one another. It's a great read if you want to do that in your personal time. Daideche 3.1. My child, run from every evil, even that which resembles it. Run from it. Do not get mad, for anger leads to murder. Do not be jealous insightful, enraged. Murders are born of all of these. My child, do not be lustful, for lusting surely leads to perversity. Neither will you be foul-mouthed, for such are adulteries conceived. My child, do not cast spells, since such leads to idolatry. And do not be a medium. Do not be an astrologer or a magician. Do not be in any way even considering to do such things, for idolatry is born out of them all. My child, do not be a liar, since lying leads to theft. Do not be greedy or conceited, for robbery is born from all of these. My child, do not be a complainer, since this leads to blasphemy. Do not be selfish or one who is filthy-minded, for blasphemies are born out of all of these. Instead, be gentle, since the gentle will inherit the earth. 
Be patient, be merciful, be honest, quiet, and kindly. Always consider the words you have just heard. You will not puff up, nor will you allow disrespect to enter in. You will not associate with the self-important, but will walk with the zadik, the righteous and the humble. Then, even when accidents happen to you, such will be received as good, for nothing happens without Yahuwah knowing. Amen. Amen. You see, Daideche at least, and most probably Yaakov, was addressing Jewish zealots within his audience. And why was he admonishing them this way? Because these Jewish zealots, their actions left unaddressed, left unchecked, could actually lead to what? Murder. Murder with these Jewish jealots because murder was being practiced by a number within the assembly. You see, at the time of this writing, murder was accepted as a religious way to solve disagreements. And Yaakov is addressing the Jewish zealots within the congregation saying, you need to check where this is coming from because it will lead to murder. It may have already been known that there were murderers within the congregation from the zealot movement, but at the time of the writing, that was an accepted way to address and solve religious disagreements. Now, there's two reasons, two reasons for man's failure to satisfy his lusts. Number one, because you ask not. Because you ask not. This is the present tense. It's a continuous failure to ask, failing to turn in humbleness to the living Yah. We have got to turn in humbleness to the living Yah. We are required to be like our author's namesake, Yaakov, and we wrestle with Yahuwah. We wrestle with him in prayer to obtain what we need. We do not go to the world to obtain what we think we need. Right? It isn't a sale if it's going to cost you money. Right? (laughs) Everything's on sale for crying out loud. Everything's a savings, but it's not a savings if it's going to cost you money. But that's what the world says. Come to us and we'll provide it for you. We'll just enslave you more. What's happened, to the, what's happened to Africa? What's happened to the na- all of the nations within Africa? They are enslaved to the World Bank because they were hungry and they said, what, you think we gave them food because we love little children? Don't get me into Bob Geldof and what's going on in England right now. I'll get into that in a couple of weeks when I give you the full story. But it's insanity enslaving nations to the World Bank so we provide them food. And then guess what? They are debtors and now enslaved to the globalists and they will have to do whatever they want, which means what? 
Now they've aligned themselves with Islam. You wonder why there are... Look at, the, look at the demographics in Africa over the past 20 years and how there's literally been whole, whole Christian communities gone, wiped out. Ethiopia used to be a great Christian nation. Well, that's not true, actually. They had Haile Selassie run in the place. <laughs> now, the Rastafarians would totally be like, oh, yes, yeah, Rastafari, ever living. And they take that passage from Genesis, every green herb is for you. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it doesn't mean that you've got to catch it on fire. There's a lot of that going on in Oregon, isn't there? My goodness. You drive out in the country and all of a sudden you find these chain link fences and these generators and bright lights. And you're like, wonder what's going on in there? feel bad for the people who are living next door. I mean, that's just waiting for a robbery, isn't it? I mean, you, I mean seriously, when, very dangerous, very dangerous. Two reasons I was saying for man's failure to satisfy his lusts. Number one, because you ask not. Number two, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your own lusts. You see, man asks amiss due to his wicked inclinations of his heart. He's wrongly motivated, is he not? You see, there are actually prerequisites to prayer. In verse 6, lay aside pride and approach Yahuwah in humbleness. Yochanan Aleph, 1 John 5.14, have confidence in Yahuwah, seeing his will, asking his will to be done. The content of a miss is that you may spend it on your own lusts. That's what they do. And if you remove the grammar, you find it, in your pleasures you spend it. Take out the grammar, because the grammar, there is no grammar in Greek, it's been added. In your pleasures you spend it. Meaning, asking Yahweh for pleasures so they can spend it freely on themselves. That's called prodigal son stewardship. We don't want that. Look at verse 4. You adulterers and adulteresses. And of course, this is in the feminine plural collective. It's talking about Israel, the bride of Yahuwah. Now, the Tanakh is where we find the concept of spiritual fornication. And it's caused why? How? By friendship with the world. They wanted to get friendly and go back to Egypt, right? So they fornicated and they were adulterers and adulteresses because they said, oh, the garlic and the onions and this Moses, he's not coming down. And the next thing they know, they've got themselves Attis, the bull, and they've made a golden idol. If you're a friend of the world, you put yourself in a place of personal hostility to Yahuwah. And I was, we were just driving in together and I looked over at my wife and I said, you know what? I hate the world. I have no affinity with it. I have no problem with this verse in Yaakov chapter 4. It's not even a temptation for me. It is not a temptation for me. I mean, I've lived a very, very interesting life and, you know, I, I, I mourn my sin and, and we'll get into that later. But I also understand that Yaakov... Yahweh has me here for a specific purpose and a specific reason. And part of my testimony is that 
from the age of 13, I delved all the way into everything for 11 years. Everything the world had to offer, I tasted and I did everything. And it left me dead, empty. And I, my heart, oh, I knew, I knew, I knew that I had seen things that no man should have seen. I knew I had set my hand to things that no hand should have touched. I knew my tongue had said things that no tongue should have said. And I knew that nothing could be done for me. I knew that Buddha abandoned his wife. He abandoned his children and that his carcass is turned to dust. He's rotted in the grave and that he couldn't help me. I like the idea of the Hare Krishnas running around London. They were a bunch of nutters, still are, and I grew up with a bunch of Hare Krishnas. If you're in London, they're everywhere. It appealed to me. But it's not going to help with the fact that I knew what I had done. Now, Native American spirituality appealed to me. So off I go to the chief and off I go to the sweat lodges. And I'm smoking the peace pipe. I like that. It's kind of like, you know, pretty similar to the lifestyle I had been living. Can't we throw a little bit of stuff in this and make it go a whole lot better when we're having hallucinations in the lodge? You know? But anyway, this is my heart, deceitfully wicked above all things. At the end of the day, the reason I came to faith is because I knew that if there was redemption, that it could not be found in anything that I did. And that if there was redemption, it had to be outside of myself and outside of any man that is dead. And when I was given the truth of the resurrection of Yahusha and the Keporah atoning coverage of sin, that I could now enter into the presence of Yahuwah, I knew it was truth. Because I knew. You could put a Bible in my hand and set me out on the corner of the street, and I still would have been filthy rags. That's the works of men but only the inward work of redemption. That's the testimony. That's the testimony that we all have. Inward purification because we no longer are adulterers and adulteresses. Look what it says. You do not want to be a friend of the world. I hate what the world did to me because I joined myself and became a slave with it. And I tasted of everything that it had to offer and it was nothing but death. Romans chapter 8 verse 5 says thus, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Ruach, the things of the Ruach. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and shalom. Because the fleshly carnal mind, it's an enemy of Yahuwah. If you love the world, you want to go and do all of that? You are an enemy. I acknowledge I walked hand in hand with Satan and I was an enemy of Yahuwah. For all of those years, I didn't know it because I was so blasted that I didn't care. And that's exactly what the world wants you to do. 
Take away your senses so that you don't even acknowledge that there are spiritual repercussions for everything you say, do, see, touch, smell, and eat. But to be spiritually minded is life and shalom because the fleshly mind is an enemy of Yahuwah because it's not, listen, how is it an enemy of Yahuwah? Because it's not humbled itself to the Torah of Yahuwah. Nor indeed can it be. They'll fight the Torah at every word that you give. They will fight it. They'll fight it with the traditions of men. They'll fight it with highbrow theology. They'll fight it with carnality, licentiousness. They'll all fight it, but it all comes down to they will fight the Torah of Yahuwah. And they will not humble themselves to the Torah of Yahuwah, nor indeed can they. So those in the flesh, those standing proud against the Torah, cannot please Yahuwah. Then you skip down to verse 12 in Romans chapter 8. If you continue to live this way, you'll die. Only the sons of Yahuwah Those led by the Ruach will live and they will be called children and heirs. Heirs of the covenants of promise, Ephesians 2.12. You see, enmity against Yahuwah and his Torah means you're carnal and you're going to inherit death. It's that simple. You cannot get around it with the traditions of men. Romans chapter 8 you know, Romans, let's Romans Road. How many of you did the Romans Road when you were in other establishments? Oh, my goodness. You like that one? Is that okay? Is that okay? Other esta- are, we, are we okay with the other establishments? Are we? Is that okay? All right. Crying out loud. I'm trying, people. It's against my nature, which is carnal. No, it's not. It's fleshly. No, no, it's not. When I say those things, though, I do get those charges, do I not? I'm trying. I'm a work in progress. If you had known how far I have traveled, not all as holy as you guys. I was disadvantaged. I had a very disadvantaged youth because of my own carnal, fleshly desires, all self brought on, I must say. Verse 5 Do you think that the Katuv? said in vain, the Ruach made to dwell in us is being provoked to envy. This is just fascinating to me. Fascinating as we delve in more and more into the scriptures. Do you think that the Katuv said in vain, the Ruach made to dwell in us is being provoked to envy? Now, there's a couple of ways that you can take that, the Ruach made to dwell. And we'll get into that. But we have to understand, we go back to the mountain, Shemot, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, the second commandment. We know that Yahweh is a jealous Elohim. And the Ruach he put within us craves and yearns for him like longing affections of a lover. It's like a lover's jealousy over a rival. Yahweh is unwilling to share us with the world. He is is so jealous of us, like a, a lover for a rival. He is unwilling to share us with the world, and the world is his rival. 
And that's why there is that enmity, right? You can understand where he's coming from. Put in the Kadosh realm of the Shamaim, the heavens. In the Testament of Dan. Oh, if you haven't read the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, it's very great nighttime reading. I find the older I get, the more and more I read. It's just insanity, isn't it, honey? I mean, I can be, I can like... 18 hours, non-stop. I, I'm totally great with that. And Tamara's like, and I'm, now my daughter's getting older. She's got the, t- the way she makes my tea is just phenomenal. I mean, I don't even have to get up. I'm like, and I've got, the, I have this little tone I say, and it goes, she'll come running. Hattie! Hattie! And she'll come, yes, Papa? Yeah, I'll say, and then, and then she'll bring me in a square. I'm good. I mean, I hardly have to get up. It's phenomenal. So, I mean, my family, they are so good and understanding. So I really, really recommend the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs. The Testament of Dan 1.5, it says thus, I confess, therefore, to this day, to you, my children, that in my heart I resolved on the death of Yosef, my brother, the true and justly man. And I rejoice that he was sold because his father loved him more than us for the spirit of jealousy. And oh, this is a vain, a wonderful, wonderful phrase here. For the spirit of jealousy and vain glory said to me, though thyself also art his son. And one of the spirits of Belial stirred me up saying, take this sword and with it slay Joseph. So shall thy father love thee when he is dead. You see where all this is coming from? Verse 8. Now this is the spirit of anger that persuaded me to crush Joseph as a leopard crusheth a kid. And now, my children, behold, I am dying And I tell you of a truth that unless ye keep yourselves from the spirit of lying and of anger and love truth and long suffering, ye shall perish. For anger is blindness and does not suffer one to see the face of any man with truth. For anger is an evil thing. My children, for it troubleth even the soul itself, and the body of the angry man it maketh its own, and over his soul it getteth mastery. And this is Dan as he's on his deathbed. On his deathbed. Now, like I said in verse 5, there's two possible meanings to the term the Ruach made to dwell. Number one, if the Ruach is the object of the verb form made to dwell, then it reads, he yearns jealousy over the Ruach which he made to dwell in us. Number two, and this is the way I think it goes, And you can disagree with me. This is just my opinion. Number two, if the Ruach is the subject of the verb form made to dwell, then it reads, as the Ruach HaKodesh, whom he made to dwell in us, yearns enviously. And number two would mean at conversion, and this is my testimony, at conversion, the Ruach HaKodesh began to yearn enviously in me for total devotion and loyalty against worldliness. I mean, 
I know that I know exactly where I was, exactly what time. I know exactly, boom, when the Ruach Hakodesh came into me. I know exactly when and where. And then guess what? Started to yearn in me. And when I then went out and started to do the things that I was normally doing, there was this weirdness that there was no longer this kinship. And there was a check, and I was like, and that was this, and the battle began. The battle, and it's still to this very day, and it will never, ever end until we are in his presence. And it should never end. And if it has gone cold, then you've gone cold, right? It's not the massive things now. It's the things that maybe just your family see. Right? John's in the back's like, no, I, I see a lot too. <laughs> but it's that Ruach HaKodesh that yearns enviously for the neophyte's total devotion and loyalty against worldliness. Importantly, it speaks against the believer harboring. And you've got to realize this. As believers, we cannot harbor We cannot play hostess with the mostess to another spirit, can we? The spirit of worldliness. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. You cannot play hostess to a rival spirit, the spirit of worldliness. And I sense this in some. I do. Harboring the spirit of the world. A familiar spirit displays unfaithfulness, to the indwelling of the Ruach HaKodesh, a troubled soul, one who vacillates back and forth. They never really enter in, and they're always struggling because they are harboring a familiar spirit, the spirit of the world. Troubled souls on troubled waters. Verse 6, we have seven now specific obligations to Yahuwah. But he gives more favor. Therefore, he said, Yahuwah resists the proud. And in the Septuagint form, we find this in Mishle, Proverbs 3, verse 34. Yahuwah is scoffing. Yes, he scoffs. Yahuwah scoffs at the sinners. And it's on par with Yahuwah fighting against them. But he gives favor to the humble. Subject yourselves, therefore, to Yahuwah and resist Satan, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh unto Yahuwah, and he shall draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your leaven oats, your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep, lest your laughter be turned to mourning and your simcha, your joy, to heaviness. You see, many proclaim the call to return to Torah. But they don't exhibit a turning from evil and sin and the true Torah observance that is required. You see, we live in a world surrounded by Pharisees. Do we not? And Torah terrorists. Right? Man, especially when you're in my position. Oh, whew. Verse 10, 
Humble yourselves in the sight of the Master Yahweh, and he shall lift you up. Seven obligations to Yahweh we have. Number one, he gives more favor. We've got to appropriate grace. The proud don't think they need grace, do they? But we have to appropriate grace. Only to his lowly ones will he extend grace because we are aware of our desperate need for it, right? I am aware of my desperate need for his grace every single day. Number two, the second obligation that I have to Yahuwah, I need to subject myself. I accept my proper station. This really speaks of the difference of those who are able to come under rank. Are you able to come under rank? It's a priestly military term. We do that by confessing our sins and acknowledging our guilt, never forgetting our allegiance to our first love. We have to come under rank. Number three, our third obligation to Yahuwah, we have to resist Satan. We've got to join the resistance. That's the kind of resistance that I'm going to join. Our victory is based upon our resistance. Now, because the globalist works for Satan, we can resist the globalists too and all of that. Am I allowed to say Illuminati? That one came up too, did it not? It's hard. I have to try and scale it. But it's not natural. It's not natural. It doesn't come easy for this boy. Okay. Number four. The fourth obligation to Yahuwah. In verse eight. Draw near to Yahuwah. Now, I love this. I love the way the Scripture works. It is a dictionary for the Scripture. Don't believe me. Don't believe what I'm about to say. Check the language. Go into the Septuagint. Find where this word comes from. And then if I'm saying it, what I'm saying is true, you better align yourself with the Malkitzedic priesthood. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. Verse 8, draw near to Yahuwah. In the Septuagint, the word right here is the Greek word egizo, and it means draw nigh. And where do you find this word? Funny, kind of shows up in Shemot, Exodus chapter 24, verse 2, at the Malkitzedic covenant confirming meal. Maybe I'm making this up. Check it out for yourself and see. If I'm saying this and it's true, then maybe we've got some responsibility. What? Shemo, Exodus 24, verse 2, comes the Septuagint, draw nigh. It's drawing nigh in context as the priesthood of Malkitzedek at the covenant-confirming meal. We are to draw nigh. This is the half-brother of the Malkitzedek Kohen Haggadah. He's not just pulling words out of the Tanakh, but he knows 
His students, the Talmudim, will be doing their work just as we will and will be threading the needle and saying, well, where does this word come from? It comes from Shemot 24 verse 2. Yaakov is then in context instructing us to pledge our fellowship, our communion with Yahuwah in the Malkizedic priesthood by coming to the covenant-confirming meal, which is the epitome of drawing nigh. Is it not? You can't make this stuff up, even if you wanted to. And the fifth obligation to Yahuwah, cleanse your... And this is where I'd like to add to the word of Yahuwah. And people are always adding to the word of Yahuwah. Not really, but cleanse your hands, you filthy sinners. I'm sure there's a translation where you can put that. Yeah, right? But we'll get some feedback on that from Facebook. He, I'm not listening to him anymore. He just admitted. Did you hear? They'll, they'll take that clip. They will. They'll take that two seconds there. I love to add to the word of Yahweh. See? See? Right? Oh, it's crazy, isn't it? But, you know, it's a good job I got a sense of humor. And I find myself funny. Otherwise, I'd never be able to do this. <laughs> but it is, though, isn't it? Where were we? I lost my track again. Ah, oh, yes. Cleanse your hands, you filthy, despicable, abominable sinners. It's about personal cleansing. Personal cleansing. The language here of ceremony, pre- ceremonial, excuse me, priestly cleansing as we approach Yahuwah in our proper priestly rank. It's all in context of the Malkizedic priesthood, verse 7, verse 8, because we leave behind the world as we ascend the mountain to the covenant confirming meal. No double mindedness here. Let your heart and hands be in full service pure and undefiled, no longer at odds with Yahweh, because you are no longer a friend of the Egyptians. There is nothing worse than the body not fulfilling what the heart knows is true. Nothing worse than a body not fulfilling what the heart knows is true. The sixth obligation to Yahweh is, of course, Teshuvah. Repentance. Pure Teshuvah contains four things. One, we need to be afflicted. Your sin should weigh heavy. It's a realization of your wretchedness. And that's what I was sharing with in all seriousness earlier. The second sign of pure Teshuvah is to mourn. We express grief and sorrow. The third sign of pure teshuvah is we weep. There should be an emotional response to sin and shame in our lives. And the fourth sign of pure, pure repentance is laughter turned to mourning. You see, and this is it. And I find this so. I find this so. And this is what I was trying to communicate to you earlier. You see, what was once a pleasure to me, what once brought me laughter when I used to just sit around and ha, 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 you know, 
knocking it back and lighting it up or whatever you were doing. I'm getting the holy looks now because none of you did any of that. But, you know, whatever that was that brought laughter, it was all because you were what? At a kinship with the world. But instead, now you look back on those times, those things that brought you laughter and joy, and it makes you mourn. And you are sorrowful. And you think, how could I have done that? It makes you mourn. And it is sorrowful of the squandered life the squandered relationships, the squandered resources. I mean, I blew a trust fund. Blew it. (sighs) Wow. Seven obligations to Yahuwah. The seventh, humble yourselves in the sight of the master, Yahuwah, and he shall lift you up. We've got to pitch pride overboard, don't we? We have got to pitch pride overboard. overwhelmed (sighs) verse 11 speak not evil one of another Israelite brothers he that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the Torah and he judges the Torah but if you judge the Torah you are not a doer of the Torah but you are a judge of it you see there's this low value and then there's this overvalue and this is the dichotomy that we see in the traditions of men <laughs> I'm trying, brothers. It's unnatural for me, but I am going there. (laughs) Oh, dear. What was I saying? What verse were we in? What's going on here? Verse 11. Let's back up. Let me compose myself. It's an inside joke. It's an inside joke. Verse 11. Speak evil not of one another. Or speak not evil of one another, Israelite brothers. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the Torah and judges the Torah. But if you judge the Torah, you are not a doer of the Torah, but a judge of it. And I'm laughing because I'm trying to get over the inside joke here. But truly there is 
a distinction, and we find this dichotomy between low value and overvalue when it comes to this verse. Because the traditions of men place a low value here on the law addressed. The traditions of men, they don't value it as Torah at all. How many of you heard, well, this is talking about the new gospel law. So the Torah then has what? An undervalue, a low value placed on it upon the traditions of men. They come across this verse and it's like, well, no, this is a new gospel law that we're talking about. The new gospel law. Like the slanderer, they think they're superior to Yahweh's Torah and bypass it, nailing it to the tree and you have the lawless gospel because they interpret verse 11 with a low value of Yahweh's Torah. They interpret it as the new gospel law. Right? Wrong. But then, on the other hand of the traditions of men, there's the overvalue of the phrase Torah in verse 11 we find. Other, this other string of men's traditions, they see either Torah, all five books, Everywhere you find the Greek word nomos. Oh, that's the Torah. Where's the Torah? Nomos. Torah. Nomos. Torah. Like, Torah's everywhere. Torah, Torah, you Torah. How the Torah are you? What the Torah's going on? I mean, Torah everywhere. They overvalue the phrase nomos as Torah, never rightly dividing the word of Torah and actually coming to the knowledge of the Malkizedic Torah of distinctions of the book of the covenant Torah as opposed to the imposed book of the law, the Levitical schoolmaster. Because to them, nomos is Torah everywhere. So there's these two dichotomies with verse 11 of the traditions of men, either undervaluing it leading to lawlessness, or overvaluing it, leading to Torah terrorism. But the narrow road is the rightly dividing point of covenant Malkitzedic Torah, understanding that the book of the law and the book of the covenant are not synonymous terms. Are not synonymous terms. Don't speak against fellow believers because that's the behavior of unbelievers, persecuting believers. It's against Torah. There's no article, the, in front of law. So in context of verse 8, looking again at the Septuagint, the Greek word egizo, which we find in Shemot, Exodus 24, 12, draw nigh at the covenant-confirming meal, the context of the covenant-confirming meal and this text is the priestly ceremonial language that appears in it is talking about what Torah? What Torah can it be talking about? We've got drawing nigh from the covenant-confirming meal. We've got cleanse your hands. We have all this priestly ceremonial language where the actual Greek word appears in the Septuagint in Shemot Exodus 24 too, the only context that bears it up 
is the Melchizedek mountain book of the covenant reality as a kingdom of priests becoming cleansing your hands so that you can now operate in the priestly service under Yaakov's half-brother, the Kohen Haggadah, under the order of Malkitzedek. The only Torah available at Exodus 24-2 was what? The book of the covenant. That was the only Torah that the language leads us back to. There was no book of the law. There was no Levitical priesthood. That is not the Torah that the language and the context of verse 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 lead you back to. You can't get there, but it will lead you directly to the mountain and the Malkitzedic book of the covenant Torah, the law that governed Israel's life, right? The perfect law of liberty that was given to a newly liberated nation from slavery. Verse 12, there is one lawgiver and shofet judge who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? This verse then is so misused so often by people who don't want to call out their sin. Now, this is where I would go into my address, but I have come under advisement not to. Correct? He's blushing in the back, and he's laughing. He's leaving. Now, my nature, now is this... Brother's going to throw something at me. He's looking for cabbage. It's not saying that we can't judge people. It's not saying that we can't judge people. It's stating that Yahweh alone declares his will. He is the lawgiver and he alone enforces his will because he is the judge, right? He punishes those who disobey. He is the ultimate lawgiver. He is the ultimate judge and he's in ultimate control over the realms of life and death. Yaakov is showing the contrast between Yahuwah and man, where man's judgment is limited to the guidelines laid out under covenant Torah, not as a judge of the Torah covenant. Because Yahuwah is the judge of the Torah covenant, but man has to then work under the guidelines of that Torah covenant. We find in Corinthia Olive, chapter 5, verse 1 through 13, that Shaul judged. Verse 3, he judged the man and he told the congregation at Corinth that they were to judge. I'd like to do a little judging right about now, but I've been told under advisement not to do it because I was going to name names and everything. Oh, but I am going to listen to my counselors because a wise man seeketh many counsel. Now, of course, I'm not saying that my counselors are liberals because they are not, but the bloody liberals will rip out Matthew 7, verse 1, totally out of context. Ooh, judge not that you not be judged. You can't judge somebody. Oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. This isn't saying that you can't make a judgment. It's talking about not making a hypocritical judgment. That's the context. How many people do you start judging someone? 
about how they're sinning, how they're not living according to their test. Well, you can't judge me, brother. Well, you don't want to judge. You call them out because you find out that they're a filthy whoremonger that's nicking from people. And then, oh, you don't want to judge me, brother. You can't do that. That ain't holy. No, it's not saying that at all. It's saying, do not let your judgment be hypocritical, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment, Yochanan 7, verse 24. Judge righteous judgment. Did you call him yesterday? Oh, he's going to. Righteous judgment is based upon the word of Yahweh, and that's how we are to judge, right? You've got to watch the liberals ripping out Matthew 7, 1, totally out of context, to hide their sin and despicableness. And we will not cave into that liberal interpretation. And that's where I'll stop, right? Wrong, right, yes, stop, because I could, I'm not going to give in to temptation. Verse 13, come now, you that say, today or tomorrow we shall go into such a city and continue there a year. And we'll buy and we'll sell and we'll prosper. You do not know what shall be tomorrow. You see, when we we talk about often, you know, we all do. We talk about in the family. We always say, uh, and we pray Yahuwah will it. We pray Yahuwah will it, that he will it. You know, we always have that caveat. Because we do not want to presume. And if it is Yahweh's will, we shall go and pick up some chicken tikka masala tomorrow. After it's been kosher, we go to the co- then we, we pray that. Well, maybe not, but that's what I'm feeling. I'm hungry. Sorry. <laughs> that blooming salad we were fighting over. It just didn't tie me over. You do not know what shall be tomorrow. For what is your haim? What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. For what shall you say? Is the master Yahuwah willing we shall have haim and do this or do that? And of course, in context, verse 13 is not talking about chicken tikka masala. It's not talking about that, but it is speaking about Jewish merchants who had their whole calendar planned out. Their self-confidence was based entirely upon the assumptions that they would make that they would sail from one city to another city as these merchants, these Jewish merchants, and it would make them guilty of the sin of what? Presumption. That's what Yaakov is dealing with in context. Now, we have to understand, at the time, we had Pax Romanas. Pax Romana was in place. You could travel all over the Roman Empire. It was in peace at that time. And you could travel freely throughout the empire, and they could fling their wares wherever they went. And he's addressing these Jewish merchants that would travel Pax Romana through the Roman Empire. This brings me to a very interesting verse I'd like to get to, because we haven't 
understood this properly in our scriptures, turn with me to Mark chapter 14, verse 3, and I'll tie this in with these Jewish merchants that were traveling all throughout Pax Romana, Roman peacetime, at the time of the writing of Yaakov. Mark 14, 3. And being in Bethania, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at a meat, he sat at a meal. There came a woman having alabaster jar of ointment and spikenard. It was very precious, and she broke the jar and poured it on his head. Now you have to ask yourself, what on earth is a leper doing inside the city? This doesn't make sense to me. I mean, Numbers chapter 5, verse 2 in the Torah is pretty clear where the leper's supposed to be. So what's the leper doing inside the city gates? And why the mention of the jars of ointment, right? This is what I'm thinking. You see, Mark, what are you laughing at? Oh, okay. All right. I just thought I didn't. My wife's over there laughing at me. It makes me nervous. Okay, laughing with me or something. Mark 14, though, does introduce us to someone we've known as Simon the leper. And you have this vision of this guy and his arms all dropping off and his tongue's hanging, his ears all, you know, and you're thinking, well, what's this guy doing in the house? And what's he got all these jars around him doing? What's he up to? Is he really called Simon? And is he really called, is he really a leper? And would Yahusha, this is the biggest question you have to ask, would Yahusha be able to be defiled by a leper who lives inside the city right before Pesach? Now, according to the King Jimmy translators, are totally oblivious to the Torah, we've got no problem here. But to us, we've got some major problems. We've got a leper hanging out inside the bloody city. We've got Yahusha getting touched by the leper right before Passover inside the city. We've got quite a few problems here that I'm not comfortable with. We're going to tie this all the way back to Yaakov chapter 4, verse 13. Because if we actually go into the Aramaic, and I'm not a grand fan of the Aramaic, I've got to admit, because it's like this mysterious text that you can never really pin down to exactly which document and where it was written. And it's very, it's just like you just, just try to grab it. And, and it's just, man, that Aramaic, it is hard to nail down. And I know, brother, you're a big fan. Am I wrong or am I right? It's, it's hard to, I mean, you can't just, you can't pin it quite down where it came from, when it came from, who it came from. I mean, it's mysterious. They're always finding it under some bloody heap of sand with a Bedouin and an Arab running around on a donkey. I mean, it just makes me nervous, you know? <laughs> but the Aramaic, the word for leper here is the Aramaic garabar, garabar with vowel pointing. But if you actually remove the vowel pointing from the Aramaic garabar, you end up with another Aramaic word, garava, which means jar. Simon the jar merchant. 
He was a traveling jar merchant, Pax Romana, Yaakov 4, verse 13, traveling throughout the empire, selling his wares. But there's more. He wasn't a leper. He was a jar merchant, which makes sense while he's got all these jars in his place, right? Right? Now it's starting to make a lot more sense, isn't it? Simon the jar merchant, he lived in Bethany, which is very near to the Temple Mount, which, as we'll discover, is very important. Now, you have to bear with me. I'm slightly going off on a rabbit trail, but I believe I can tie it back in. Because I need to give you the backstory of Nick at night right now. Nicodemus. You know, Yahushua came to him. Nick and I like to call him Nick at night. Anyway, Nicodemus means innocent of blood. However, Simon means, Shimeon means the one who hears Elohim. The one who hears Elohim. Now, history informs us that Nicodemus was in fact a jar merchant and a trader in grains. Nicodemus is mentioned in rabbinic literature, Tan 19b, 20h, and 21c, as Nicodemon ben Bonai. Nicodemon ben Bonai. Nicodemus is in fact the Greek rendering of that name. Now, according to historical documents, he was one of three wealthy Jews of Jerusalem who helped accumulate grain stores in their jars for the siege of Jerusalem in 70 of the Common Era. Nicodemus, a follower of Yahushua, was a prepper. He was. And he was storing up grain in preparation for the siege of Jerusalem in 70 of the Common Era because he understood that the globalists at that time, the Romans, to take control over populations, what would they do? Cut off the food supply. Now, we're going to get into this in a couple of weeks because I have to address what's going on in the world and what's going on in the nation, what's going on in Britain with the Brexit. But ultimately, what the Romans did, what Stalin did, if any of you know what the Ukrainian Holdemore is, if you don't, you should find out, is exactly what they are working of in Europe, what happened in Ethiopia in 1976 to 1985 with our boy Sir Bob Geldof. It's all part of what they're bringing to you and I in a city near you soon. We'll have to address it because it all ties into exactly what I'm talking about. Nick at night was a prepper. He was preparing the Talmudim using his resources, using his contacts, Pax Romana, as a great merchant to store up supplies for the believers because the new world order was coming in for mass migration, depopulation, and the way they do that, you can move. You can literally move a whole nation by moving the food. That's what they do. If they decided that they wanted to get you out of 47 states and get you into three southern states, they could easily do it by moving the food. Put in Monsanto in 47 
and then putting grain, food, medicine in three. And you can move a whole population. Stalin did it. Bob Geldof did it. And I'll address that. And now they're using him, of course, as the voice person to keep the migration in Europe because they don't want, the globalists do not want Britain to migrate back to the homeland, the island. They want to keep them in the European Union. So they bring out 1985's boyhood wonder, Bob Geldof, who is the greatest mover of people in the latter half of the 20th century, only second to Joseph Stalin himself. And you think Live Aid was about feeding poor African children? It's insanity what you have been led to believe, what I have been led to believe. And I will actually unravel that in the next few weeks because it is so important and it's so interesting that they have trotted out Bob Geldof for those that would want to try and use him to get Britain to stay in the European Union. Very interesting indeed. But we'll get into that. The point here is Nicodemus, Simon the leper, is none other than Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the jar merchant in Bethany, who was traveling Pax Romana as a jar merchant and before the destruction of the temple in 70 of common, the common era, he was a prepper storing up grain for the disciples and the Malkitzedic priesthood. How do you store grain for the siege in 70 of the common era? It's even recorded in the Talmud in Gitti 56a. We know this by the information by four things that we find about Nicodemus. Number one, he was one of the wealthier men in Jerusalem. Number two, his real name was not Nicodemus, but Nicodemai ben Bonai or Bonai. And number three, after he became a believer in Yahusha, he and his family somehow lost a great amount of their wealth because they were persecuted by the upper priesthood. And this is recorded in rabbinic literature in Sanhedrin 43.1. And he, using an altered name the rabbis gave him, says Bonai was a disciple of Yahusha. And number four, he made his living as a jar merchant selling grain and digging wells around Jerusalem because they cut off the food and then they pollute the water, right? And then they can move a whole population. You see, there is nothing new under the sun. When we read Scripture and then we layer history in it, and Scripture always has precedence, always has precedence. It is inspired by Yahuwah. History is not, but history is what helps you understand and together with the predominance of scripture you can literally see into the future it's supernatural because the history is the future and the word of Yahweh is beyond this world is it not we are amazed and we are so equipped he is equipping us and when I talk to people I, I think you know you know I'm, I'm blessed that I read the scriptures that I love history but when I talk to people out there, they really have no idea. And it makes me realize, oh, 
we really actually do know amazing things that people have no, they don't even conceptualize. I think it's kind of common because we're all talking about this and we all have different, and I'm in the body of believers and we're, but you get out, whoo, clueless. Oh man, when that train hits, they are going to be down and out and crying in their empty bowls. Three days and the food is off of the shelves. And you know, I guarantee you this, Yahweh told you in his word, when you leave Egypt, you're not going to have any food and no fluid is going to touch your tongue for three days. You're not going to have any food and you're going to have no fluids for three days. You can guarantee that. And then you're going to have to come to Yahushua and throw his tree in the waters so that they no longer are bitter and are made sweet. You see, this we know. We have to prepare. So three days... And the food's gone from the grocery stores, let alone the medications. So these are things, sobering times for us to live. Simon the jar, my, blah, blah, blah. Simon the jar maker, Simon the leper, is none other than Nicodemus, the ruler and teacher of the temple Pharisees. But once he became a disciple of Yahushua, they went after him and they took his wealth, his position, and they then made him realize that he needed to prepare for the times ahead, which was 70 of the common era. Closing up now in verse 16 and 17. But now, Gilah, rejoice in your boastings. All such pride is evil. All believers, we are called to live by faith, which will give us the calm against tomorrow's insecurities, right? It does. Therefore, to him that knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. We need to be sensitive to change. We need to change our plans to Yahweh's revealed will. And we need to change our doctrine to Yahweh's revealed will. To him who knows to do Torah and doesn't do it, that's sin. You know that you shouldn't be doing Easter and you know that you should be keeping Passover and you don't do it. That's sin. If you know that Shabbat is Shabbat and it's not Sunday morning and you don't do it, that's sin. If you know that you're supposed to be doing Yahweh's word, Yahweh's way and you don't do it, it's sin. This teaches us and admonishes us to get right with Yahweh. We have to adjust our plans and our doctrine to be with Yahweh's revealed will. Not the pastor's revealed will, not the globalist's revealed will, not your naturopath's revealed will, not Safeway's revealed will, not Target's revealed will. <laughs> Henry. We have to humbly seek his face. Sin is not only a wrong act, which is loose living or sinfulness. It can also be a right act that isn't performed, keeping the commandments of Yahweh. Amen. Amen. Who would have thunk we could have gone so long with 17 verses? I was a little feisty today. My apologies, not really, but anyway, (laughs) blessings, any questions, (laughs) comments?
shaking. So, uh, yes. Green, green for go. Just want to confirm next week there'll be no live stream and no fellowship, correct? Correct, correct. Next week we'll do um, home fellowships and we will be back in two weeks, yes. Home fellowships and we do have a midweek Bible study and we are doing Adobe Connect, correct? Is that up and running? Adobe Connect will be coming soon. Adobe Connect will be coming soon where we can have hundreds of people interfacing and doing all kinds of weird and wonderful things. No, we're just going to put Matthew in the hot seat and he'll have to answer questions one at a time for hours. Superb, superb. (laughs) All right. Abba, we thank you. Your word is truly sobering and inspiring. Abba, let your will be done and you reign in our hearts, in our minds, in this temple body you have given us, in Yahusha's mighty name. Amen and be blessed.